Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Holly Mills. Holly is a healthy habits coach, nutritionist, and personal trainer based in the UK. She's been working in the space for three years after losing 50 pounds and keeping it off for herself. We have a great conversation around the importance of building better health habits and why small habitual changes can lead to amazing positive impacts in all aspects of your life. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And with that, let's welcome Holly. Holly, thank you for joining me today. Hi, I'm very happy to be on. Yeah, uh, so we're going to talk about healthy habits and how small changes over time can lead to big changes in the long run. So to start, why don't we go into your personal journey? Like, how do you get into coaching? Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually started off how most people start off, and I did it myself. Um, I was at a point where I wasn't really that happy in my body. I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't feeling my best. So I decided that, you know what, I, I need to make a change. And this was back in 2019 ish time. Um, and I was like, right, something, you know, something needs to give. I wasn't feeling confident. I didn't feel good in myself. And I just knew I wasn't looking after myself the best that I could. So I was like, right, I was like, I can either do all these diets that I've tried in the past, go to these extreme measures, or I can actually sort this out once and for all, for all and change my behaviors. And that's what I did. So I started to look at things and I started to like learn basically like how to use your, your habits to make change, change your behavior, and actually focus on making these small sustainable changes rather than these big like lofty overhauls that actually then yeah. added up over time and left me in a really good position. And I basically found out I had a bit of a passion for this kind of thing. Um, I started helping people do the same. And that brings us to kind of like now where I've been working as a coach now for about three years. And I've been helping women just like lose weight, learn how to keep it off, all through making these small sustainable habit changes rather than the big lifestyle overhauls that we're all kind of typically used to in the, you know, the, the health and fitness industry. Awesome. Yeah. I, when you reached out, I was, I was happy to have you on because it's actually one of the things I, I, I don't want to use the word preach because I don't want to preach to people, but it is one of the things I promote is like small changes is small changes that you can maintain is always better than like a big change that you do for a day or for a week and then you drop off. So what were some of the small changes that you made personally? Yeah. So for me, one of the things was actually monitoring what I was putting in my body um, and actually having a good idea of what I was putting in. It wasn't, okay, well, let's follow this strict diet regime. It was, what am I actually like eating? And that was literally keeping a food diary and going, okay, well, if I can do this and then I can start to make a couple of small tweaks, can I add a little bit more veg in there? Can I add a bit more fruit in there? Is that the best thing that we should be eating on an evening? Should we be having an entire bar of chocolate? Like, or can we start making some tweaks and changes there? So for me, one of the first places I definitely started was food and actually thinking, well, where can I, you know, make those changes then? And then another area would have been in that exercise. I started actually doing purposeful exercise and thinking about my movement and moving more daily. And I really went through the notion of adding things into my life. So for me, it wasn't about taking habits away. So it wasn't like, stop eating this, stop doing that. It was, well, let's either replace or let's adjust. Let's just slightly switch what we're doing a little bit. And that really, for me, allowed for like a lot of change and change in a really positive way as well. Awesome. Awesome. Um, when did you start working with other people? So that would have been back in 20, the start of 2021. So yeah, three years ago now. Um, so I've been working with, yeah, I've been working with mainly women over like the last three years. And really it's been about like making these changes. I started off like 
in person as a PT, but what it's kind of like transformed into now is actually a lot more habits-based coaching because I think that's the best place to change. I think we can look at exercise as part of it, part of the equation. It's not the whole story when it comes to your health. So we're really going to look at that big picture. And I think that like what I do now is the best way to kind of help everyone. What do you feel like are some of the challenges that women specifically face since you work mostly with women? I think like one of the biggest things is that mindset around dieting. A lot of the time we're in this all or nothing, like this perfectionist like extremes. And we, we're taught this from like a young age. We're taught, you know, like we've got to do well, like especially if you've been a high achiever, like you've got to do well. You've got to, you know, be perfect. You've got to like always be hitting these high marks. And then we end up in this cycle where like if we're not perfect, we do nothing at all. That's not how your health works. You don't just like, like if you can just go perfect and then you do nothing at all and just go perfect, you're not going to get anywhere with it. So actually we need to look at making these small sustainable changes. And that's really like what the the focus is for me is making sure that people make those changes over time. And actually, you know, for women making the changes outside of that all or nothing sphere. So actually making that consistent change and being consistent with change rather than the the two extremes. Yeah, that... Uh... That striving to be perfect will really screw you over when it comes to yeah. uh, trying to reach a goal, right? Because that perfection, I, I'm somewhat creative and I know like in art and stuff, if you try to be perfect too, you're you're just not going to create anything because nothing will be good enough. And same with habits. Like if, you, if you're just trying to be perfect, you're probably never going to get there. So you'll have plenty of excuses to give up and, and stop trying, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's actually not the best way to build habits either. So there's a little bit of like what I like to call the Goldilocks rule. Um, And it's really where we need to be like 85% perfect. And that allows for your brain and your body to work at its best. So um, we basically, if something's too easy, we won't do it. (laughs) We basically will go, that's too easy. We won't bother. If something's too hard, the same thing will happen. We'll go, that's too hard. We won't bother. So we don't end up with action if we're on either ends of the scales, whether it's too easy, too hard. So we need a Goldilocks habit where it's just right. And that's what we need to aim for is we need to aim to have something that's around that 80 to 85% consistency. So you, it's not that you'll be perfect with it. It is a bit of a challenge, but it, it's easy enough that you can get it done. It's easy enough that you can push and you can get to that point where, you know what, we, we've been really, really consistent with it. And I like to call it a Goldilocks habit because, you know, we, it's just right and it's really working towards that point. But your brain actually works best at this point as well because it allows for a little bit of failure which allows for the the little tingles that we like for it to say it's time to learn. It's time to learn how we do that better next time. So if we do, you know, that we go, we go, we go, we go, and we do really well. And then actually we have a moment where we didn't hit something because we had a spanner in the works. So let's take steps, for example. You might hit 10,000 steps, 10,000 steps, 10,000 steps. But then one day you're not perfect, hit 8,000 steps. That doesn't matter. You might have like, you know, not hit 10,000 and failed, like per that logic. But actually, you've still been super consistent and your brain goes, great, well, we now have a challenge for tomorrow, hit 10,000 steps. And your brain actually likes that. Like it likes that little bit of like failure almost. So something that you can be 85% consistent with is perfect. So it's about making these these small changes that actually push you enough, but not too much, if that makes sense. Yeah. What are the typical changes that you help people make? Like, are they the same from person to person or does it differ quite a bit? So I like to think that we have like um, the first, well, we have basically the first five. That's something that I teach within inside the framework that I use. Um, and really these are five habits that I think are key for everybody. However, 
they're not the same for everybody. So really what we're thinking about is five habits. I'll talk you through them in a second, but five habits. And we're all doing them to a varying degree anyway. And it's about, well, where do we take it to the next level for you? So say, for example, the first one, steps. We can look at what you're doing. Say right now you're doing 8,000 steps per day and we want to get that up to 10,000. It might not be that we go, right, 8,000, let's go straight to 10,000 and do it. It's okay, well, let's go to 9,000 first. Let's push that up a notch. And then another one we look at is water. So we go, let's think about the foundations of your health and fitness. And that's where these five are. Water is the next one. If we stay nice and hydrated with like basically making sure you're in tip-top shape for performance, whether that's physical or mental, making sure that you're getting that water in. Say right now you're only getting a litre and a half of water in. We want to make sure we're pushing that up a little bit more. So can we take that to two litres, which I believe is about 70 ounces uh, <laughs> ounces for you. Um, but yeah, it's really about making sure that we push that up in a little bit. So we've got steps, we've got water. The next thing we've got is an eating structure. Most people are in the habit at the moment of just grazing. So they'll, they'll start their day, they'll have breakfast. Then mid-morning, they'll have a snack, they'll grab a biscuit. Especially in the UK, you grab a biscuit with your cup of tea and then, you know, it's, it's easy done. Then lunchtime comes around, we have lunch. Then the afternoon comes around and 3 p.m. comes and you have a bit of a slump. So you go and grab some more food. Then 5 p.m. comes around, 6 p.m. comes around, you have dinner. And then the evening comes around and then you sit in front of the TV and then you go, oh, fancy some chocolate. So then you go and get some chocolate and you've just grazed all day and there's no structure or like semblance to your eating. And then on a weekend, you might miss breakfast because you get up later and then you snack in the morning, you have a bit of a lunch and then you snack in the afternoon. And it's all this just kind of like messy grazing. So we want to make sure that we have this structure and this semblance to what you're doing. Um, and that starts with are we hitting basically three meals and a snack throughout the day? That doesn't necessarily mean it has to look in the traditional sense, but I like three meals and a snack like separated throughout the day, whether that's in a close window if we do like time-restricted feeding, whether that's appropriate for you, or whether we do like a, a, a broader kind of like spectrum of right, breakfast we have at 8 a.m., lunch we have at 12 p.m., so we have a snack in the afternoon at 3 p.m., and then we eat at 6 p.m., we have dinner. But it's that structure, and it's not this constant grazing throughout the day. Um, and then finally, we've also got your exercise. So doing some form of purposeful exercise, ideally resistance training throughout the week, aiming to do that on three plus times. But most people, if you've not started off with exercise, will start off with, right, well, let's do it once and <laughs> um, build out to two, build out to three. But if you're already someone that's exercising regularly, then it's about getting structure into that exercise. Going, right, let's make sure we're following a plan. We've got structure. We're pushing you a little bit further. We're going a little bit harder. Are we actually progressively overloading? Are we getting better and better each week? So then your first five, we've got steps, water, um, three meals and a snack. So your eating structure, um, uh, keeping a actually keeping a food diary, which I've uh, not mentioned yet, and uh, your exercise. The keeping a food diary is just so that we have a log of what you're eating and it just makes sure that we're actually aware. We're bringing that unconscious behavior into your conscious mind. And that just allows us to start making changes there and improving that overall quality. And that's really where I'd start, like thinking about those five areas and going, well, what changes can I make? What small changes can I just make slight improvements to what I'm already doing? Yeah. With, uh, with fooding, do you, do you look at like fasting or anything like that ever? So for me personally, I do fast. Um, I think that's one of those skills that's something that's maybe a little bit further on, like down the line. Um, it kind of fits into that three meals and a snack. But what I'd say is more important than time-restricted feeding is getting that quality of food better first. So it's going, okay, well, are we actually eating some decent quality food or are we, you know, are we eating some protein? Are we eating some vegetables? Are we eating like a good source of carbohydrates? Are we getting some healthy fats in there? Or are we eating just like complete junk? 
like let's get that bit sorted first and then think about those like kind of nuances and those kind of like time restricted feeding um i personally do around 13 to 16 hours of fasting but that for me is just a, okay well this is something that works around my lifestyle i know from a performance standpoint like i work best on the morning when i've not eaten otherwise i have a little bit of a, a, a dip after breakfast so i i work best that way and that to me is just a kind of like a a skill that comes later on rather than a we must do this or we must do that kind of thing but yeah for me like i quite enjoy fasting i think it works for me do you fast i do i've been doing it for about five years and it's uh I, i'm not gonna say i'm the healthiest person because i'm far from it but it has helped me uh with like weight maintenance and stuff like that i'll do a 16 hour fasting schedule every once in a while i'll do like a multi-day fast but honestly i I don't often do it. <laughs> I like to eat. So, but the the 16 hours, I just feels like I feel like it makes sense um evolutionarily like our ancestors thousands of a thousand years ago, they didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have all this processed food that they can have sitting around just waiting to be eaten. It was more of like you find food, you eat, and then you'll eat next time we find more food. Um, yeah. that's basically how we evolved. So I figure it's probably more in line with our evolutionary upbringing to do some form of fasting. For sure. And I think as well, if we think about the types of food that we go for, particularly on an evening when we're low in motivation, we're low in energy, we're dipping, we're going for those hyper palatable, high calorie, high calorie dense foods. And they're not those foods that are optimal for health. So if we do have that kind of, I, I don't like to call it a rule because I do still think we need to have flexibility and know that we don't have to be perfect within that fasting mindset. But if we have that boundary and that guideline to say, actually at 8 p.m. tonight, I'm going to stop eating, you're less likely to graze into the evening. You're less likely to yeah. end up eating a chocolate bar, eating a packet of crisps like at 9, 10 p.m. Because you've got that kind of like that that set boundary in your head. You've, you've almost drawn the line in the sand. And it just allows that decision to kind of like be made for you. And I completely agree in terms of weight maintenance. I think it's a tool that can be used. And if that's a tool that works for you, fantastic. Like that, I think that's a really important thing that we need to recognize that everyone's going to work slightly differently. And if that's a tool that's working for you, then then great. Like, I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, it's it's funny because I've noticed, I've noticed things from doing it that I didn't notice before. Like one of them is, you kind of touched on it, but at night, like after, after that 8 p.m. time, I often want to eat crappier foods. And having stopped at 8 p.m. usually stops me from doing that unless I'm, you know, my will isn't too strong that night and then maybe sometimes I'll cave. But then the other thing I noticed is if I eat carby meals without much protein toward the end of the night, I'm way more likely to wake up feeling hungry. Uh, it, Compared to like if I ate chicken or a steak or something like that, um, more protein and uh, fat. But if I eat carbs, like a lot of bread or anything right before uh, the end of my fast period, then I wake up hungry, which is interesting. Even if it's a ton of bread, even if it's a more than my fair share. Yeah, it's really interesting. That I think when you start doing things like fasting and you start paying attention, even to keeping like a food diary, when you actually 
realize what you're eating and you actually pay attention to how you feel when you're eating, that can actually open up a whole like new avenue for you because a lot of nutrition is personalized and a lot of nutrition is, well, this food makes me feel good, but this food doesn't make me feel good. And your friend might feel completely different about that. So it's important that you take that personalized approach to your own nutrition and pay attention to what's going on in your body. And I do think like fasting is just, again, one of those tools that actually allows you to pay that like extra bit of attention. I think a lot of the time we have these like um, like linchpin habits. Basically, they kind of like hold everything else together and they can set off like a cascade of everything else. Um, and fasting for some people is that habit where it gets them thinking about, well, what's the quality of my food? What's like, what's this? What's like going on there? Like what foods keep me hungry? What foods leave me having like an energy dip? What foods make me feel really good? And it all kind of comes back together. But like actually fasting is almost that linchpin there. For a lot of people, it's exercise. So moving your body gets you thinking about like, oh, well, actually, do I feel healthy? Like, does this make me feel good? And they go, actually, well, because I've exercised today, I'm not going to go eat a McDonald's. I'm not going to go like, you know, like pack my body full of crisp chocolate. Like it's actually, I'm going to go eat some healthier stuff. And again, that exercise becomes almost like that linchpin habit and it holds everything else together. And that's there, I think, a really interesting way that we can start to look at like habits and health and go, well, how can we find these habits that actually everything else exists around? and that can kind of like hold everything else into place and that'll be different from person to person depending on what your motivation is but if you can find one thing that triggers a cascade of other things like and does exercise make you drink more water does it make you eat healthier does it make you sleep better like does it make you be in more of a routine if you can find that one thing like that can be really really beneficial for actually making everything else easier yeah with with food what are some of the foods that you recommend people take up if they're not um, using those foods much and what are some foods that you recommend getting rid of? And some people have various, people have very different diets, right? Somebody could be eating a lot of candy and junk food, which I'm guilty of sometimes. Um, but some people are eating less healthy foods and like, I'd imagine some people you work with are more they need to focus more on the physical aspect than the food aspect. Some people need to focus more on the food than the the fitness aspect. So what are some of the foods that you recommend? What are some of the foods that you recommend getting rid of? And how do you approach it when somebody is consuming a lot of just bad food? Like, do you get them off of that all at once or do you slowly get them off of those foods? So the way, well, actually, we'll start off with a kind of like that first question of like what of like foods do like I recommend. So I think whenever we take like an overall approach, we should be really aiming for about 80-20. And again, that fits within the idea that I was talking about with those Goldilocks habits of can we get around 80% to like 85% being around about where we want it to be. So if we can get 85% of your foods to be whole foods, so we're thinking like, Either, I mean, like whole grain, ideally, but we're talking about proper foods here. Like if you're eating white pasta and you're eating white rice, like the world's not going to end. It's better than you eating like a McDonald's. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so I've not got anything against McDonald's. I'd like to clarify this. Um, but yeah, it's better than this kind of like packing our day full of like this crap. But if we can yeah. make sure that actually we're aiming for these whole foods, we're getting in plenty of vegetables. We're getting in plenty of plants, ideally as well. Like across the week, if you think, can we get like, you know, can you get your broccoli in? Can you get carrots in? Can you get like potatoes in? Can we get these natural, these whole foods in there? And can we also get plenty of protein in as well? I think they're your first areas. If we can add more vegetables, add more protein and add more of these kind of like 
whole grain proper foods and build meals up like that, making sure you've got 25% like of your plate is built as like protein. We're getting in around half of your plate as veggies, salads or fruit. And then another quarter of your plate down as like that carb. You're setting yourself up for success just, just there and there. And that kind of links into the, like that that last question that you'd asked about how to like almost like get off junk food or like if you if you like you know eating a diet that's super heavy in that, it's actually probably the easier way to add other foods in. So rather than saying, I'm going to take this out, I'm just going to stop eating chocolate. I'm going to stop eating candy. Like I'm going to stop eating crisps, whatever it is. We go, well, actually, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to replace that habit with something else. Because when we take a habit away, we leave a habit hole. So we leave basically a nice nice area for you to go, oh, well, I want to fill that. But I've got this thing that's a perfect shape that will fill that. And that's exactly the thing that I'm trying to avoid. So what we want to do is actually avoid that, like creating that habit hole. And instead, we want to fill that with something else. So if we can fill that with your protein, your carbs, your um, you know, your, your whole grain carbs, your vegetables, your fruit, like if we can fill it with that, then we're going to have less room and you're going to be less hungry to eat the candy, the, you know, the chocolate and all the, you know, the quote unquote, like a bad stuff, the less optimal stuff for your health that, you know, what we're like talking about. It's that kind of foods that are not leaving you feeling at your best. We know that they're not best for your health. So if you can aim to start doing that, adding in more of that good quality stuff, that should help in, you know, in the process to remove some of the like less good quality stuff anyway. It should actually help to kind of like build that up anyway. And I think that's a really good place to start is actually just going, well, how can I add more of this in rather than going, what can I take away and create a habit hole? Think about like creating, like putting more stuff in first and that should fill that habit hole by itself. Do you, do you run into it where somebody is eating foods that completely undermines their other efforts, though? So, like, if, if somebody's eating just candy for lunch, like, they're not even consuming, like, nutritious food at all. They might be tired, and then they don't want to go to the gym, and then they might need to sleep more. Like, they, I mean, because eating a lot of junk food will cause you to have deficits in other areas of your life. so. Do you run into that ever where somebody's eating foods that are just preventing them from having success in the other areas that you're trying to get together? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's obviously the, the old saying that like abs are made in the kitchen and, you know, your diet really does come down to like a lot of like your health. I think that's one of the, the easiest place to start. But say we're in a position where food is like food quality is actually a really low point. Like, like you were saying, like if they're eating candy for lunch and they've got no structure, it's literally like grabbing that chocolate bar and that's, that's, that's all you're getting. <laughs> um, it's really about going, well, maybe can we start to improve another area of your life and get that as that like habit cascade and get that as like your linchpin habit in elsewhere. And that one behavior could promote that behavior. The other way we can approach it is actually start to look at why and go, well, why are you eating that chocolate bar for lunch? And say you go, well, actually it's because I'm working in an office. I don't really get a lunch break and the vending machine's around the corner and I can get up on my way to the toilet, press the button, grab my candy bar and come out again. And that actually then makes you think, well, okay, well, let's address that problem instead because it's often that there's much more going on because it's not that that person doesn't know that like eating a chocolate bar for lunch is not optimal health. (laughs) It's often that there's more stuff going on. It's the convenience of it. It's the, I don't actually know how to solve this problem elsewhere. So if we can look at that and solve that problem, then often we can go, well, actually, here's here's the changes we can make. Yeah, that almost sounds like a trigger, right? Like, For um, sure. When I was drinking, I'd drive home and I'd 
see a certain gas station that I would buy beer from. And I'm like, I'd start rationalizing buying beer that day. That sounds like something similar going on there in the case where somebody's, oh, I'm walking by a vending machine and it just kind of clicks in their brain. Oh, I want to buy a candy bar right now. Yeah. It might be more of a habit than anything. Yeah. A lot of the time we have these habits and we have these triggers and we don't even know they're going on. Like you said, like you you drive past somewhere and you'd automatically turn in. Like it, it's that, like it's that trigger that's happening so subconsciously that we don't even know it's there. And that is often the hardest thing to do is bring that like subconscious or that unconscious behavior into your conscious mind. But that's the first step to change. So we need to bring it from basically being something that you're not aware of to being something that you're aware of. And then actually from there, we can then start to make that change. The other thing you've got to do is want to make a change. So if right now you're eating a, like a candy bar for lunch and you still want to eat a candy bar for lunch, we can't change that. Like it, it, we need to, you need to want to change it to <laughs> for it to actually work because no, no amount of someone telling you is going to actually make you change. I mean, we see this in like public health all the time where, you know, we have government schemes that say you should eat this, you should eat that. But if that worked, then <laughs> we'd all be in perfectly along the food pyramid, but we're not. So it, it's, it's not necessarily a lack of information issues. Sometimes it's a, like the individual has to make that decision for themselves before you'll actually be able to do it. It sounds like there's some overlap with mindfulness. So do you, do you work any mindfulness into your program? Um, it almost sounds like the way I approach meditation is pretty similar. Um, I, whenever I'm talking to somebody who doesn't meditate that is thinking about it, they're often hearing, oh, you should do 20, 30 minutes a day. And I always say, no, don't do that. Do like, three or four, maybe five minutes a day at first and just build that habit. And it, it seems like there's some overlap with what you're doing with mindfulness of like, you want to be paying attention to everything. You want to be mindful of your eating. Why are you doing this? So can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I love to say to like anyone that I work with is get curious. So like we're not here to judge you for what you're doing right now. We're here to get curious around it because that all of a sudden removes the like the guilt around these behaviors. But these behaviors you're doing for a reason, like you're doing because they've served you up until this point. So we want to go, well, actually, can we get curious around why like, why you're doing it and what you think you're getting out of it? And then can we replace that with something that's, that's more beneficial? So one, for example, that I see a lot is emotional eating. And this, again, does come back to a lot of the mindfulness work that we need to do in here. And journaling is such a fantastic tool if you struggle with emotional eating. Um, and this really is one of those things where people go, well, actually, I was feeling really stressed. I'd had a really stressful day at work. I'd been in the office all day. I'd been, you know, like my boss had been on my case. Like I had, I had extra work put on me at 4.55 and I was meant to be finishing at five and it just, it all piled up. You got stressed, you went home and you went, I want to relax. And how do you relax? You have a glass of wine and some chocolate. And like, those are just your things. But you do that for a reason. You do that because you've been taught or you've taught yourself in the past that that's how you relax. So what it's important to do then is go, okay, well, let's replace that behavior. Let's go, well, instead of relaxing via food or relaxing via having a glass of wine, can we relax in a different way? And that's, again, getting curious around it and going, well, what's the feeling that I want to feel instead? Well, okay, well, I want to feel I want to feel relaxed. I want to feel not stressed. Well, what else relaxes you? Well, I actually quite like reading. So can we do some reading on an evening? Or do you know what? When I was younger, I used to love painting. Can we get you a pain by numbers? <laughs> and getting you doing something that just keeps you relaxed. It keeps you in this state where actually you're feeling 
better in yourself and you're feeling that emotion that you want to feel, but we're not using food, we're not using drink, we're not using something else, like something that's like an unhealthy or like unoptimal behavior to actually get you feeling better again. And I think that's what really where we can like bring all this together is you're thinking about like that mindfulness and being curious around things. But if you approach yourself without judgment as much as possible and then get curious around why you're doing things and what it is that you want to feel, we can then replace that behavior with something more optimal. Don't, don't you kind of want judgment to some degree though? Like, like you want to determine what's good and bad for you, right? Or is that not helpful? I think we can determine judgment like without like being, I, I think there's a fine line between like, like judgment and like feeling like guilty and harsh on yourself mm. and beating yourself up too much because often beating yourself up will then lead to an, again, another unproductive behavior. So actually we can sometimes look at ourselves and we need to look at kindness. I think especially for women who've been taught okay, well, you either you've got to be perfect or you're a failure. Like we don't need any more failure mentality in there. Yeah, it's about yeah. going to go well, let's let show that kindness there. I think there's a degree of holding yourself to a higher standard though, 100%. Sometimes we let ourselves off the hook and that's about going, well, no, we need to we need to hold ourselves to this higher standard. There's a really interesting kind of like um, bit of basically like research around like the way that we think about habits. And basically if we kind of focus, when we want to make progress and when we initially have that burst of motivation, we, it comes from a place of this is who I want to kind of like be. This is where I want to get to. And I always like to think of goals as not thinking about like what you're going to achieve as being like, who are you going to become instead? So thinking about where you're going in that future. But what we want to do there is that's enough to get us going. We get a clear idea of where that kind of future is, who we're going to become in that future. So say, for example, for me, when I was like, um, like wanting to lose weight, I was like, right, okay, I want to become a person who's confident in their body. I want to feel strong. I want to be able to walk up the stairs without getting out of breath. And I want to just feel like a 20 something who is like, feels confident in their body and has got got their life together. That's how I wanted to feel. So I knew that's who I was becoming. I knew that's what I wanted. But the way that we keep going is not by focusing on that version of you. It's by focusing on what happens if you don't become that version of you. So what happens if you stay exactly where you are? What happens if you keep in this cycle where you are emotionally eating, where you aren't getting anywhere, where you are treating your body like rubbish? Like, what happens if we stay there? Well, actually, we're not happy. We don't feel confident in our body. We don't feel strong. We don't feel like we're working at our best. And we never become that version of like yourself that you know you can be. And that's how you keep going. So I think sometimes it's not necessarily judgment, but we need to ask ourselves, what's the consequences of staying where I am? And are they worth it? Like, and most of the time it's like, no, it's not worth staying where I am. I need to like, then keep moving. And I think that's where we find that line. That's where we find that balance by going, this is where we're going. And this is why it's important for me to get here. But also this is why I can't stay where I am right now. This is why we need to change. And that's kind of like finding and mixing that compassion with the kick up the ass. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of funny. It's making, this is making me think of a, an interview I did on the law of attraction and I saw some disparity between what I was saying and what she was saying, as far as what we believed in motivation and stuff like that, what you're saying aligns more with what I've learned and what I believe. Like I like Huberman labs. I love that podcast. Andrew Huberman gives him solid science backed information. And that's the information that they gave with like goal setting and stuff like that is like, you actually kind of want to think of what it would look like if you failed at what you're trying to achieve and then 
that is motivation to keep going. Whereas like the law of attraction mindset is you want to treat things as if you're already where you want to be because you don't want to think of things in a negative way, which is just interesting. It's interesting the two different approaches there, but I, I tend to align more with what you're saying. Like you want to think of the consequences of what you're doing if you were to fail, if you were to not approach things in a positive direction. Um, with, with indulging. So if somebody, they're trying to be healthy, but they have a slip up and they're like, I'm going to have a piece of chocolate. How do you coach as far as some people have, and I'm one of these people, I have a tendency to overindulge when I, when I do decide to indulge, I can be really good on something, but then one day it's like, I will eat junk food until my belly feels like it's going to burst, you know? Um, so how do you coach somebody as far as preventing that overindulgence when they do decide to indulge in something? Yeah, I think um, first off, it's important that we keep that 80-20 approach. So 80% anyway is coming from whole foods. So if you can keep that, we've got 20% wiggle room for those more fun foods. But like you said, a lot of the time, it's not necessarily like, oh, well, I just eat this because you're not eating chocolate because you're hungry. You're not eating candy because you're hungry. That's not why you're eating. So we kind of want to like think about that first off and go, well, why are we eating this? Why do you like overindulge? Is it that you like the taste? Is it that you like like how it feels? Is it that you associate it with doing an activity? Like we often sit, we watch a film, we have popcorn, we have chocolate, we relax whilst doing a certain thing. So a lot of the times there's more going on to the food than just simply we eat because of hunger. And I think, and, and this is probably more a topic for another day, but I think with a lot of like um, the like modern kind of like, like basically the weight loss drugs that are out at the moment, like Azempic and um, uh, Wagavi, Wagavi, whatever it's called, that one, Wagavi, <laughs> the one that's, uh, I think you might even, that might even just be a brand name, but yeah, um, the ones around there, they often just really address hunger. But the issue isn't a lot of the time, we're not just eating for hunger. We're eating because of other reasons and we eat because of emotional reasons. So we kind of want to look at that first and go, well, okay, well, why are you overindulging in this food? I found, so like one thing that I've found for me that was a coping strategy was that I would eat a full like family-sized bar of dairy milk, Cadbury's dairy milk. And that was my, let's eat that chocolate bar. And that was basically because I, I felt one, lonely, and two, I felt like sad and I wanted to feel not sad. <laughs> so that for me was my coping mechanism. So we've got to look first and go, well, is hunger an issue? And if hunger's not an issue because we're getting plenty of protein in, we're getting plenty of veg in, if that side of things is addressed, then there we then look at this overindulgence and go, right, well, something else is going on here. We're eating for another reason. Is it boredom? Is it loneliness? Is it that we're like feeling another emotion? And actually that's triggering that. So if we get clear on that first, that can then kind of give us a direction that we can head in. It can give us a little bit of clarity on like, what's the what's the thing for you? I mean, for you, what is it? What's the reason that you then go for, why do you go for candy? Like, what is it for you? Uh, one of the reasons would be because I took an edible. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, when I take an edible, I don't always give in to cravings, but you, know, you get the munchies every once in a while. So that would be one thing, but I, there's plenty of other reasons. Like one of the things is like just throwing, throwing, what, what would the saying be? Throwing the baby out with a basket or the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, it's like, well, I'm already doing this. And I know a lot of people rationalize behaviors in this way. 
well, I've already eaten this. I'm already off track for today, so it doesn't really matter. So that is one rationalization I, I find myself making sometimes. And I know other people do too. So how would you how would you address that kind of rationalization? So that's that all or nothing mindset that we were talking about. That's that perfectionist in there that's gone, oh well, I've I've messed up now. Like I can't I can't yeah. stick with this. I've I've messed up. So therefore I need to continue to mess up. But the way that I like to think about it is if I had a dog for 99 days and on day hundred I give away that dog. You couldn't say that I never had a dog. That wouldn't be accurate information. Yeah. So even though I wasn't, I didn't have a dog perfectly for a hundred days. I still had a dog. Like <laughs> I still had one, and that would be very rational for you to say. And I think that's like I think it's it's important that we rationalise a lot of this. So why would it be the same that if we were really really strong with our habits, we were promoting like having really strong health promoting behaviours eighty five percent of the time, but then fifteen percent of the time we weren't perfect. We wouldn't say that we're not a healthy person. We wouldn't say that actually we're, we're not like, you know, we're not someone that cares about their health, that's not pushing themselves towards like optimal health. We'd just say that they're not perfect and that's okay. Like it's okay not to be perfect. And I think sometimes just having that little bit of a mindset, like release and relax around things and going, it's all right if we're not perfect, that then just takes the pressure off with everything else and allows for you to go, do you know what? Instead of trying to be perfect, I'm just going to focus now on enjoying this bit of chocolate that I'm having, enjoying this bit of candy, enjoying these crisps and saying, actually, I'm going to do that first off. And that's going to, you know, I'm going to enjoy that for the 20%, but I don't need to overindulge because it's okay that I wasn't perfect in the first place. It's forming a bigger picture and not this individual kind of like snippet that seems to become our whole story. Yeah, I, I'd agree that it comes down to a perfection mindset. Like I'm I don't always see myself as a perfectionist, but I I tend to be at least in some regards. And that I like I get very self conscious about releasing something into the public, which is why you know, this podcast is a uh, it's a challenge for me because I'm I know I'm going to say things wrong. I know I'm going to stutter or use the word uh, use the wrong word, and then have to correct myself and I know when I listen back later, there's going to be something like, oh, I should have asked that. Oh, I shouldn't have said this. I said this wrong. I, there was one episode where I, man, I can't even remember what it was now, but I listened back and I'm like, I just in my head, I'm like, I don't even know if that's actually true what I said. I'm like, is it true? Like, I think it was about wrestling being unique because of some quality about it. And I was talking to my girlfriend later. I'm like, is this true? I'm like, I guess it is kind of true, but it's still, it, I like second guess myself. So that perfection mindset is definitely a big factor. How do you, how do you get rid of that though for people? Like, I mean, that perfection mindsets are something that are embedded into people and they're, they're not easy to break. I mean, these are oftentimes, these are these could be things that were passed down from parents, the way they were brought up. It could be just something that they imposed on themselves, something that they picked up from how they were treated in school. I mean, there's so many different ways, but these are things that are often embedded in people since they were young children. So how do you, how do you really address that? I mean, is it, is it just mindfulness or is it more? 
I think, like you said, like these things come from childhood. Like we, we can see and like oftentimes we can see exactly where they came from in childhood. So for, for me, I like to call myself a recovering perfectionist. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was I was an overachiever in school. So I got 10 out of 10 on my spelling tests. I did the best in my maths, like, you know, maths test. And it was this idea that I had to be perfect. And when I was perfect, I got positive attention. Teachers told me I was doing really well. My parents told me I was doing really well. Like they said, oh, you're going to like go on to great things, Holly. And I was like, great, I'm going to do all these great things and I'm going to do this. And it just became this like challenge and this this stress and this this idea that I had to be perfect. Otherwise, I wouldn't get rewards. I wouldn't get told I was doing a good job. I wouldn't get, you know, basically told that like you're on the right track and given that pat on the back. And that for me then got really scary because I was like, wait, what? if I can't be perfect, I don't get rewarded. And that is a really stressful thing. And I think that's something that if you've ever got good grades throughout your time in uh, education, I think that's a very stressful kind of thing to, to kind of be in. The other side of things, I, d- I tend to find that perfectionists fall into like three categories. Now there might be more, but these are the three that I think I definitely most commonly see. There's the overachiever, did well in school. There's the um, the people pleaser. And they're someone who feels like they need every they need to make everybody else happy before they make themselves happy. And this often shows up, I think, with people who say had like parents that argued quite a lot. Like I'm not gonna go into obviously like psychology, I'm no psychologist, but um I think like it happens we say like you think that if you behave as a kid, everyone else will be happy and no one will argue and it's all gonna be okay. Um and that again is just the well, let's turn into a people pleaser. And then there's also the person that's still like the FOMOer, so the fear of missing out. And we have that and we think, well, if I'm not part of the tribe and I'm not part of the, you know, like everybody feeling happy basically, and I don't make sure that everything's nice and like I'm part of the group and I'm safe, I'm not going to be safe. And that can look like, I mean, it obviously comes down to like our animal instincts, basically. That comes down to the chimps in the jungle who needed to be part of the tribe. But it also comes down to the kids in the playground who needed to be part of the group so that they didn't end up unhappy. So we've got to kind of like find this this balance really. And we've got to find this like like recognition that it, it's coming down to a behavior that we've got ingrained in us and it's ingrained in us for a reason because at some point it made us feel safe it made us feel happy and it, it made us feel like loved so we've got to go cool that was that was serving us at that time that perfectionist mindset got us through childhood but perfectionism serves children it doesn't serve adults perfectionism gets you good grades in school it gets you into a good uni perfectionism makes sure that you have friends on the playground so that you know you're not around awful kids and that's what it did but it's not serving you now as an adult so I think the first thing we need to do is rationally look at it and go okay maybe perfectionism is not serving me as a 25 30 year old 40 year old however like you know however old you are like it's not serving you now so if we can get clear on that first and go actually do you know what it's not serving me right now then we can start to move forward the next tool I think we really look at is going, well, where have you been a perfectionist? Oh, you've been a perfectionist around food. You've been a perfectionist around people pleasing. And you've been a perfectionist, you know, around any of these other areas. And then once we've got that clear, then we can start to introduce the next best thing mindset. And that's where we go, well, okay, perfection is here. If we can't be perfect, what's the next best thing that we can do? And that's just a step back from that state of perfection. And this, again, is hitting that 80 to 85% mark. Sometimes it will be 85%. Sometimes it will be 40%. But 40% is better than zero. And that's what we need to think about here. So we go, okay, well, let's take let's take exercise, for example. So say we're going to the gym. And the plan is that we're going to go to the gym three times this week. Three times would be perfect. 
it gets to Monday night, we're meant to be going to the gym and all of a sudden we find out that the, the dog's not feeling well, we need to take the dog to the vets. All of the evening's gone up, in, uh, gone up in the air, we can't do anything and we go, right, okay, we need to take the dog to an emergency vet's appointment, I'm not going to make it to the gym. We could go, right, well, we won't go to the gym for the rest of the week, but <laughs> that would be taking us to zero. There are so many steps in between where we are now and zero. So then instead we go, right, what's the next best thing? Next best thing right now, I'm going to move my gym sessions tomorrow night. Then I can do tomorrow. Uh, I can do tomorrow. I can do Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Great. I can still manage everything in there. I can do it there. It's the same thing. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm actually just going to make sure that once I get back from the vets, once we've got the dog sorted, I'm going to go for a walk instead. And I'm just going to make sure I'm going to get some extra steps in tonight. I'm going to get some movement in, but actually everything's fine. And your whole week didn't fall apart <laughs> because we had that one moment there. We still stayed yeah. consistent. We just adjusted. We just went, what's that next best thing? Let's say we take food for an example and we've got to the end of the week and you've been super stressed. Everything's been kind of falling apart. You've got no food in the house and someone goes, shall we order a takeaway? <laughs> and you go, oh God, no, I wanted to like kind of eat well tonight. Like I've, I've kind of didn't eat like a great lunch. Like I want to eat good quality food. And they go, shall we order a takeaway? And you can go, yes. And you can just go, right, okay, what am I going to order? Everything on the menu. I'm going to go for the classic. Like <laughs> I'll have the starter, I'll have the sides. I'll have, you know, everything. Or you could go, Actually, you know, do you know what? I, I'm going to have a meal. I want a really easy to cook meal, but I've got a frozen pizza in the fridge, I'll, uh, in the freezer. Like, I'll go grab that. I'll pop that in. That's the next best thing. Or the next best thing in that scenario might actually be like, yeah, go on then. Like, I'll I'll order, like, I'll have the takeaway with you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to have this one meal. That's all I'm going to eat. And I'm actually not going to eat all of it. I'm going to eat half of it. I'm going to eat until I'm 80% full. And then I'm going to leave it there. And then that's what I'm going to do. And again, this is just seeing it as a sliding spectrum. So instead of it being this black and white kind of, yeah, scale. It's a sliding spectrum. We've seen these shades of gray and we're moving along that. And I think doing that is the best way out of the perfectionist mindset. It's first addressing that you have it and why you have it and when it served you and go, cool, that's fine. It's not serving me anymore. And then using that next best thing mindset instead and going, okay, well, actually, when I can't be perfect, what's the next best thing I can do? And I think that's how we stay consistent, like as much as possible. Like just ask yourself, what's that next best thing? Awesome. Um, do you work with mostly people in the UK or all over? I, I work internationally. So, um, well, I work online, so I can work with anybody. I have got a couple of clients in the States. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm one in Canada. So it's quite, um, quite, quite interesting. One of the things I find most interesting, actually, is how everything varies, like, in terms of, um, like, what healthy is perceived as. So it's really interesting hearing, like, a, an overall spectrum. Do you feel like people in the UK have any struggles that are specific to them? Um, I think there's definitely a little bit of a mindset around, um, people pleasing. I think there's definitely that comes up more. I see that a lot more amongst my UK clients than I do my like American clients. Um, yeah. there's a little bit less of, um, being like comfortable stating your ground and saying, this is what I'm okay with and setting boundaries. And that is something that I would say, but I think on the vice versa, I think our food environments are slightly better and slightly more, um, like less around like poor quality food than what it is in the states so i think there's like like i think struggle wise i do think we do see like a lot more of the people pleasing mindset but then food environment wise it kind of like yeah vice versa i think it's really interesting that we can look at challenges on a cultural level as well and go this is something that's going on in one place geographically and like this is something that's going on in another yeah the food ingredients is a really interesting one it's something that I, I wish I completely understood it and I wish there was a way to fix it really quick, but American ingredients and in foods are pretty crappy. And, uh, we have a lot of ingredients in our food in America that aren't allowed in, in Europe at all, which is 
extremely frustrating. And I don't know if it's part of it could be the healthcare uh, system. Like we, I think you guys are on universal healthcare, aren't you? Yeah. In the UK? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's part of it when I'm not a huge fan of socialized medicine, but I do think there are some benefits. Like the fact that we have people just make money off of health in the U.S. or lack of health in the U.S. And there's really no incentive for the corporations to not put junk in our food. And people think that the FDA is our friend and it's not. And there's just a whole can of worms there. I mean, we we can look at obviously like the um the like the income inequality and the socioeconomic differences as well because for I'm very aware I think in the states that the cost of like a vegetable is more expensive than what the cost of it would be like its equivalent in the UK mm. and I think there's a big like how affordable is it to be healthy like is being healthy just a middle class thing like that shouldn't be the case but actually I think in the UK we do have a bit more access to like vegetables are cheaper I think where the biggest thing comes in here is actual education of what to do with that and how to how that looks practically um especially when it comes down to like how does this look in a meal like <laughs> cool eat more carrots great well where do I put those carrots like it's about going well okay let's let's take the theory and put it into practice and I think that's something that's not talked about globally I think that's something that really yeah. needs improving is that education around what do we actually do with this how does this look in reality yeah are there any are there any foods that you recommend people get start consuming if they're not like are there any foods that it's like oh you should be consuming this and then are there any supplements that you recommend to people and i i know supplements are kind of a sticky area because people kind of expect them to be like this miracle supplement and there's never anything like that no one supplement completely changes your life but are there supplements that you recommend like for me i'm not a big supplement person but i do take uh omega-3s and vitamin D because uh, most people are deficient in that. And then I, I think I've tried ashwagandha and I've heard great things about it, but I I haven't noticed much with it. Um, that's about all I take. Yeah. But yeah, do you have any recommended? Oh yeah, functional mushrooms. I take those too. Got it. So in terms of like foods, I'd say start there. That's the easiest place. Um, yeah. A lot of people, the supplements are kind of like the cherry on top. But if you've not baked the cake, what are you putting the cherry on top of? So it's yeah. about going, well, let's get that food kind of in a good spot first. And then the supplements, the cherry on top of that. So the first thing I'd say is protein. A, a lot of people are just not eating enough protein. Um, the recommended daily like daily allowance for um, protein in the UK is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body like body mass which sounds like you know great that should be fine and everything but that's usually not enough for people especially if you're exercising so we actually want to be eating around 1.5 to 2.2 kilograms uh, per kilogram of body weight so say if uh, if you're like a like 60 kilogram person then that's going to look like 90 around 90 grams to 120 ish grams of protein like that's kind of what you're going to be wanting to eat a day um if you're in a bigger body that's going to be very hard to kind of like scale up to start on that lower end, start probably around that 100 gram mark of protein and then build that up to like wherever you need to get there. But most people I'd say if you can aim to have 100 grams of protein in uh, like in your day, like you'll end up in a good position. Like <laughs> you shouldn't yeah. be feeling hungry from that. Um, and that would be the first place. The second place I'd say is just vegetables. Like are you getting vegetables with every meal or fruit or salad? Like something of the sort, like ideally some greenery, like that would be another good place to go there. 
you can do those two things like usually it'll fix a lot within your nutrition like a lot of the time people are not doing those two things that's the easiest place to start in terms of if you feel like your nutrition's in a good spot though and you do want to start supplementing then i'd say what's the area that actually you're looking to improve so if you're feeling like actually do you know what i feel like i'm eating a lot of um like I'm eating a lot of veg, I'm eating a lot of like like good quality food. I feel like I'm getting my healthy fats in, but I just feel like I'm getting ill a lot. Then maybe vitamin C and just maybe not getting enough of that. That might be a good idea. Um, they say you feel like actually, you know, it's it's the winter months. Like obviously in the UK, we're <laughs> we're in basically like darkness from like four thirty until like eight a.m. So we want to make sure that we're actually getting that vitamin D, and the sun usually isn't strong enough during the like the months of like October to April in the UK. So like actually supplementing with vitamin D again, not a bad idea if you're in like a country that's actually ex- experiences like um, basically daylight savings. Um, so we want to make sure that we're all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, ashwagandha from, from my knowledge of it is very much like, um, it can help with recovery, um, and can very much help with like, um, like performance. Say you were struggling like in the gym with recovery then it might help you recover a little bit faster. Again, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's person dependent. Like everyone's going to, some people are going to be hypersensitive to it. Some people are not going to be hypersensitive to it. One thing I would recommend is if you are stressed, um, your body can often dump magnesium. So magnesium is usually a good one to get in. That's that's not like a terrible option. Um, and yeah, I would say kind of like what's the what's the area that you're looking to kind of improve and then look around that. And I'd say try, sample, see what works, see what doesn't work. And actually I'd say if you are going to take supplements, you also need to be able to make it a habit so that you take it enough. But I don't think we need to be like, you know, rattling around with uh, with supplements. I think the first question is, is can you sort it out in your food? And if you can sort it out in your food, start there. With the protein, I'd imagine it matters when you're eating this stuff, right? Like if you if if you start eating at eight a.m. and you stop eating at eight p.m., so you're eating for twelve hours and you're consuming no protein until the last hour, and then you're consuming all of that recommended protein, it's probably not doing the same for you as if you spread that out over your full feeding time. I'd imagine, right? Yeah. So if we're looking at optimal, then we'd want to basically be spreading out a relatively even intervals throughout the day, ideally aiming for around 30 grams of protein per like per serving um, or per like kind of like eating sitting. So if we're sticking with that three meals and a snack, aiming for around 20 to 30 grams. So if we say 20 to 40 grams like per serving, like you'd be a good, you'd be a good rate like for the day. That'd be easy to hit basically that 100 grams if you did that. Um, Yeah. What we kind of want to look at first is think of it as like a hierarchy. The kind of like think of it like a pyramid. The base of the pyramid is: Are we getting enough protein in? <laughs> Let's worry yeah. about that first. Like ideally, we don't stick it all in one serving. But if you have a slightly lopsided day, then that's not the end of the world. The next thing I'd say is actually, can we think about that protein timing? So I'd say that for most people, getting protein in at breakfast is really beneficial. It can help one with cravings in the evening. Um, so just actually minimizing those like cravings if we're we're making sure that we're actually full throughout the day getting that source of protein in a breakfast time. And that's actually the easiest place to get it in because most people are not getting protein in a breakfast because we have cereals, we have toast, we have all these foods that don't have much protein in whatsoever. So actually getting protein in a breakfast is probably going to be your next kind of like key thing. And that would be thinking, well, can we make sure it's evenly spaced throughout the day? And then the next thing that I would say is actually, are we thinking about like around workouts? So if we really want to optimize for like muscle maintenance and muscle growth, then we can start looking at, well, can we get that protein in at, like after like post-workout, um, ideally getting some in like pre-workout as well. So if you have like a pre-workout meal, can that have a source of protein in? 
And post-workout, can we get that protein in as well? And that will just really start to help with like actually getting that muscle growth in there, stimulating that muscle growth, and um, providing that you're getting like a complete dose of protein in there as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of that hierarchy is don't, don't worry about getting in like your post-workout shake <laughs> if you're not even getting your protein in like into like enough throughout the day. I'd say get enough first, then worry about spreading it evenly throughout the day and then worry about timings to the specifics of let's optimize, let's go, let's go in for, you know, a like pre-workout shake or whatever. Yeah. It, you mentioned breakfast and I, what popped into my head is, uh, that saying that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which is, it's not true from what I understand. From my understanding is that was purely a marketing campaign. So it's a marketing campaign to sell more grains or I don't know exactly what, what the industry was that they were trying to market for, but it was basically to sell more food. Yeah, it wouldn't, it would not surprise me. Um, I mean, a lot of obviously why we have like, like cereal for breakfast was, it was basically marketing around it. Like that's, that's why we end yeah. up eating like what we eat. Um, I think the, the, the key thing is here, it's like, well, we were talking obviously about like time restricted feeding and intermittent fasting. Um, breakfast just means breaking fast. Like we yeah. also have the perception that it has to happen between the hours of like 6am and 10am like it doesn't yeah. like like breakfast is just you breaking your fast like that can happen at 12pm yeah. like it's just that first meal of the day and if you want to space those first meals out of being like a meal at 8am a meal at 12pm a meal at like whatever that's fine and if you want to go a meal at 12 a meal at 3 a meal at 6 and then snack in the evening that's fine as well like it's whatever structure works like best for you that's kind of the, the the way that I would kind of look at that and go well yeah let's let's kind of like restrict that like feeding window I think there is a lot more research being done into time restricted feeding now and there is going to be a lot more like kind of like push on that more optimal end of health but I think the first first things first is we just want to focus on that quality <laughs> so it all comes back to the basics and it always always will come back to the basics of are we getting the right the right stuff in your body are we getting that optimal food in there are we getting you moving in a way that's actually just like you know beneficial for your bones it's beneficial for your muscles it's beneficial for your mind are we getting you like out are we getting sunlight daily are we walking are we getting you know your steps in are we drinking enough water and are we you know actually eating good quality food in a regular structure and that's really where we need to start it's back with those first five and making sure that you're, you're in a good spot yeah you mentioned cereal and i i think about cereal a bit because i i used to eat cereal when i was a kid and it, looking back it's like wow what crap that was to eat like lucky charms and all that it's just, just sugar <laughs> carbs and sugar yeah it's insane that that was a you know, and it was all over it. I mean, my parents bought it, but like we wanted them to buy it. And um, I don't, I, nutrition at that time, they didn't understand nutrition. I mean, they, they did, but they weren't like all about nutrition or anything. And we were, you know, a typical family. Everyone's busy and you get what the kids want. But looking back on it, it's like, wow, just sugar every morning, just sitting there in a bowl of milk and sugar. It's just wild to think about that. Yeah. And cereals very much become a cultural thing to do. So like it's yeah. like you said, like a typical family will sit and have their cereal for breakfast and you will have your your sugary cereal that's in for the kids. And then your parents might have something less sugary because they're not exactly having their bowl of Cocoa Pops. But it's all... Yeah still centered around this and if you look at like i think there's a lot of interesting stuff goes on with food marketing but if you look at food marketing and cereal marketing it's all aimed at kids 
like sugary foods are aimed towards children. We get them on the sugar. We teach them that this is almost like the way. And then we end up like with adults that are, are not like knowing how to look after their body. And it's like, yeah, because we've been marketing to them since they've been seven. And they yeah. think that like eating sugar for breakfast is the the optimal idea for health because that's what culturally we have taught everyone. And, and like that's, I think, I think there's obviously like a lot going on there in terms of like the marketing and, you know, the social responsibility of businesses to help promote health but i also think like on an individual level like we need to get smarter about our decisions and go well what are we putting in our bodies what are our kids putting in their bodies <laughs> and think like starting to think about like this and go well is this actually optimal for my health or my family's health and i think that's an important question that like the individual needs to ask because i don't think like big corporate businesses who are making a lot of money from you eating sugary cereals are about to change their marketing message so i think that might be the, the best place to start is with you <laughs> yeah how do you how do you address the it's kind of a crisis in a certain sense around sugar because like you said we're we're eating sugar from a very young age and then you grow up and you start to learn a little bit about health and you start to eat a little bit healthier but when you peel the layers back, you find that a lot of foods that you wouldn't even expect have sugar. So sugar is pretty ubiquitous among foods. Yeah. And yeah, it's just in everything. And how do you retrain people? And I mean, I think sugar is pretty addictive. I mean, I think in my own life, like sugar is one of the hardest things to get out of my diet. So how do you coach around that how do you help people get rid of that sugar addiction yeah i think the first thing we want to be clear on is that sugars in things like fruits are not an issue so yeah. your sugar in an apple naturally occurring not what we're going to worry about this is more like your like added sugar so things like that you would find in chocolate that you would find in candy that you would find in you know your artificial foods basically um I think the first place is going, well, we need to minimize that again. Like we need to minimize that, well, that quantity of that, that we're eating. And again, we need to minimize the idea that we, we're putting it into our, yeah, like we, we, that it's part of our diet. I th again, it comes down to that 80%. Can we make sure that 80% of your food is that high quality stuff? Because it then leaves less room for you to fill up on sugar, basically. Yeah. One thing that I find really interesting is if I'm hungry and I eat sugar or I eat something that's high in sugar. So say I'm... I've had like breakfast, I've had lunch, and then I get hungry and I go for sugar, I will try fill up on sugar, except the issue is, is that's a high calorie food. It's very calorie dense for like a very little volume. And you end up just craving more of it. So you end up eating lots and lots and lots. Is if if you are hungry and you go to eat a chocolate bar, you will eat the whole chocolate bar because you're just going to keep eating and eating and eating because that's your body's going, great, I'm getting energy, but it's not actually filling you up with volume. So one of the best things that you can do if you do struggle with this, and again, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier with that kind of like that overindulging, you can pair it with a protein. So say, for example, you go, right, I'm going to have a like a Greek yogurt or a protein-based yogurt, um, and I'm going to have that with some chocolate because then we end up getting you full and you also get the chocolate in there but you can't eat as much chocolate because <laughs> you you're full and that's the that's the reason in that so i think that's probably one of the first things that we want to do is we want to make sure that we're full and we're not going hungry and we're not using chocolate to fill you up because it won we're not using these yeah. high sugar foods to fill you up because they won so we want to make sure that we're getting that protein in and we're getting that volume in through vegetables through salads through fruit um, I think the second thing we need to do is actually just 
be mindful of what we're bringing into our houses and like be mindful of what we're putting into our bodies. When you do your weekly shop, if you buy lots of perishable sugary items, you're great. Lots of perishable sugary items. If you don't buy them, you won't eat them. Like it's it's a lot harder when we we prime our environment for us not to do something. Um, the other thing as well is that we don't want to create, put them on a pedestal because we end up basically creating this like almost like halo around them and saying, this is, this food's magical. Like, and we end up basically creating Pandora's snack box and all you end up doing is going, oh, I can't eat this. I can't eat this. I can't eat this. And then when you finally do eat it, you almost like snap and you want to eat it all because you're like, oh, this is my only indulgence that I'm going to get of it. So we need to take it off that pedestal and actually go, this food isn't like it isn't serving me it isn't good for me like it isn't making me feel at my best it doesn't mean I can't have it but it just means that I'm going to minimize my portion of it and maximize my portions of those quality like high quality foods that will make you feel better um I think it really comes down to buying and like buying power that's what we've got to do here we've got to move our like where we're spending our like financial like basically where you're spending your money and spend it on an area that says actually this is going to be more optimal for my health. But again, I think that comes down to practical examples. I don't think we see enough of like, this is what good looks like. This is what optimal looks like. I share a lot on social media, like here's a sample day of eating. If I was to eat three meals and a snack, eating this many calories, here's how I'd get my 80% in of like good quality foods. Here's how I'd get this in. I don't think we see enough examples of like, like what, what, good actually looks like or what it could look like um like if especially for like individuals so i think that's something that's really important is it actually if you can have a conversation with a nutrition professional and go well what does good look like for me like that can sometimes be like okay well this is what good looks like in the context of your life because that's going to be different for everybody as well um but yeah yeah when it comes to like getting steps and working out some people might not have the ability to some people uh, their legs might be paralyzed or they might be going through a knee replacement or other things to keep them from being able to walk or walk comfortably. How do you, how do you address that? Do you have to focus more on the nutrition aspect or, or how do you usually handle that? I think if this is a like really interesting question, I think we've always got to work with the individual. So go, okay, well, if you're in a situation where even if you're down to like, oh, I have a knee injury, so actually I can't walk as much. Um, sometimes it's about going, well, let's let's reduce that. I would say nutrition plays a big part. I think just play a big part in that. So we do want to focus on that side of things. Um, one thing that I've noticed, so my um my uncle's actually just lost both of his legs a couple of years ago, and we've seen his weight increase because he has obviously been moving significantly less. So one thing to be aware of is actually if you can to a certain degree, and this is obviously going to vary throughout seasons of your life, um, but can you move your body in a like in in another capacity? So whether that is like using your upper body to like wheel you around on a wheelchair if you say like lost use of both of your legs. I think that's really what we've got to start thinking about is going, well, how can we get creative with this? How can you move in another way? And then the other side of that is, is right, well, we need to adjust for your new, your new life circumstances, whether that is a temporary injury or whether that is something longer term like paralysis. It's going, well, we need to adjust for that. So actually you can't be you you can't eat in the same way if you want to maintain a healthy weight for example you can't eat in the same way as you did when you were walking 12,000 steps a day if you're no longer able to like walk and that's making those adjustments and making sure that we actually take the context into a role as well and I think it would be unreasonable for us to believe that there won't be seasons of your life where you will be less active and seasons of your life where you will be more active um 
say you have kids, like you're not going to be going to your like, you know, three times a week sports club anymore, plus your gym sessions, plus everything else, your, you know, your responsibilities are going to change. So it's okay that if during seasons of your life, like you do slow down, it's just to make sure that everything else adjusts around that. And we will see that within the time, like across a year, but we'll also see that, like I said, like across a, a broader life cycle, it's important to kind of like just address your life and your context as see fit. But I would say nutrition is a really easy place. And then the other thing I'd say is get creative with the exercise you're doing. And for a lot of people, like you'd still be able to work out in some capacity in a gym. So that would be another way to move your body, even if it's not like that daily movement of steps, it would still be another way to move your body. Yeah. Do do you notice any specific challenges? I mean, some are obvious, but with like older people, people in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe their health isn't the best and they want to get healthier. Obviously, their metabolism is a lot slower. They have, um, they're more injury prone. How do you handle people that are in later stages of life that want to get their health back on track? We start small and we start slow. And that's the best place to kind of start there. And it's really the, the principles that we've been talking about still apply. It's just maybe we go slightly slower with them. Um, in terms of exercise, I'd say if you are, yeah, probably from like late 50s onwards, it would probably be worth speaking to a, like a professional about it just to check that you're moving in the right way. You are slightly more injury prone. Um, particularly for women, though, I would say it's incredibly important that you get some sort of resistance training in there. In there. The second that you hit the menopause, your like you'll see your hormone levels going to dramatically change, but that massively increases the risk of getting osteoporosis, which is is brittle bones for a woman. Um, so it's really important that we look after that like muscle like and bone strengths. So doing some sort of resistance training is key, especially as you get older. Ideally, you'd be doing it from a young age, so doing it from your twenties throughout your life not always perfect. Sometimes you're going to get to your fifties and you've not done anything. So it's about going, well, okay, well, what can we do with the situation that we have right now? And I'd say the best thing that you can do is start resistance training and making sure that we're looking after those functional things in health, like making sure that we're getting in like enough protein, enough veg and enough of the, the quote unquote good stuff. That's what we really want to be making sure that we're doing. And again, the same principles of just adding to your life and just thinking about how we can get those things up there. But it's just about being careful and mindful and listening to your body at the same time. Awesome. Well, Holly, uh, one thing I'd like to ask almost everyone who comes on the show is uh, about books. I'm a big reader and I feel like books can add a lot of value to people's lives and different experts have different books that have uh, impacted them and that they recommend to people. So do you have any books that have been influential in your life? They could be around health and wellness or they can be around other things like motivation or really anything. Do you have any books that you personally recommend? Uh, if you've not read Atomic Habits, then Atomic Habits is such a great place to start. Um, along a similar line of that as well is the compound effect. It very much talks about how we can make these small changes and they compound, <laughs> uh, which is again a premise that's very much spoken about in Atomic Habits. But I'd say they're the two that are around habits that are a really good place to start. Um, on top of that as well, I think if you'd like to understand your mind a little bit more, I'm currently reading The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters, I think. Um, that is, again, another very good read. Um, and it's a good way to understand your your mind and why we do the things that we do. Um, and I think sometimes addressing stuff like that is a is a, is a good way to do it. Um, but I'm a very much a podcast listener at the moment, so I really much enjoy that. The Huberman Labs is another very good one. Um, and yeah, like I think that's a very good one for diving in, like diving into like science-based stuff. 
and slightly more along the health line um whoop which is the um like the, the watch brand they also have a podcast that's very very health based as well um so if you did want like science-backed health those two are very good i'd say they're on the higher end of more science-based stuff um but they're both still relatively accessible if you are okay with a little bit of like biology awesome I'm I'm happy you recommend Atomic Habits. I haven't read it yet, but it's it's sitting right behind me, and it's a uh, it's a worthy read. <laughs> yeah, it'll be one that I read in the in the coming months. So I'm excited for it. Uh, Holly, I've really appreciated the conversation today. Uh, before we wrap up, do you want to give listeners a way to find you on social media and anything else you want to share? Yeah, for sure. So the best way to find me is um, at Holly Mills Fitness on Instagram and TikTok. If you've got any questions or anything you want like any like help with or anything you want clarifying from the back of this, then just drop me a message. Um, and if you want the easiest place to start with improving your habits, um, just drop me a message and tell me that you've listened to this and I'll send you over the healthy habits quiz. And basically in 90 seconds, you'll get a personalized response on how you can start improving your health habits and just making progress and making sure that like your your health is in a good spot. So yeah, just drop me a message. Tell me like that you've been listening to this and I'll send you it over. Awesome. Holly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at ThoughtfullyMindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.